Well, good afternoon, Hellas Church. I really am Andrew. Uh, I promise. <laughs> really do serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm glad you've joined us this afternoon to, to worship Jesus and to study the scriptures. If you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 1. And as you're finding your way to the passage that was just read for us, uh, let me ask you a question. How do you make decisions in life? What approach do you take to making decisions in the life that you're living in this world? Are you kind of a shoot first, aim second, fling from the hip kind of person? Or are you a one who makes a disciple, uh, decisions by measuring twice and cutting once a little more methodical? Now, when I ask you to consider how do you make decisions in life, I'm not talking about benign decisions like what color shirt you will wear to work on Monday. And I'm not talking about whether or not you're going to add chicken to your Caesar salad. Those aren't the types of questions or uh, decisions that I'm referring to. I'm, I'm referring to major Life impactful decisions like, should you shave your beard off or not? Uh, that, that's the kind of decision uh, I'm talking about. And, and according to my kids, I should not have. That's the consensus, right? Should not have shaved. Asher said yesterday, Dad, if, if your beard, I, I was explaining to him, look, I just needed to take a break from beard maintenance for a little while. And so I cut it down. And, and he said, well, Dad, well, what if you die before your beard grows back? And I said, Asher, why is that your concern? He says, well... If we get to heaven, I won't be able to find you. I won't recognize you if, if you die and you go to heaven and all those things. And so those are the kinds of decisions I'm talking about. Uh, big, life-impactful decisions. Life-shaping decisions. Decisions that adjust the trajectory that your life is on in a given moment. Decisions like, well, should I get married? And if I should get married, who should I marry? Decisions like, well, if I am married, should we have kids? And if so, how many? Decisions like what grad school should I apply to and what program should I choose? Decisions like where should I uh, plant roots? What neighborhood should I get a house in or a home in? What, what school should I send my kids to? Whatever the case may be, these major life-impactful, trajectory-shaping decisions that we all make at different times and in different ways over the course of our lives. These are the types of decisions that every person on the planet is trying to make, but you and I as Christians... As followers of Jesus, as disciples, we approach decision-making differently. How we make decisions is different by, because we are those who take into consideration the will of God. You know, when Jesus comes into our life and he becomes our Savior and our Lord and we start following him and trusting him, he changes everything about us, including our decision-making process. And all of a sudden, we're not just making decisions on a whim. We're making decisions in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And we're making decisions in light of what Jesus wants to do through us as it corresponds to the will of God. Now, when you think about the will of God, there's basically two ways to kind of consider God's will. When it comes to God's will for our lives, there is on one level what's called a macro narrative to his will. That is the will of God as it concerns your individual life story. The unique variables, variables of life that are relevant and true for you that may not be relevant and true for the person sitting next to you. The, the journey and the shape that your life has taken up to this point that, that is unique. That is your story. You would think of that as your micro-narrative. But then there's another dynamic to the will of God that we might describe as being the macro narrative or the big story of God. And we talk about the macro narrative or the big story of God. We're talking about God's plan and God's purpose that concerns all of his people throughout all of human history 
that's moving towards a specific end. That's moving towards an end where there are representatives from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue rallied around the throne of Jesus, worshiping him as king in the new heavens and the new earth forever and always. This macro narrative, big picture, purpose, and plan of God that's really the thrust and the storyline of the Bible. This macro narrative of the will of God is actually stated in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, the Bible points to this this will or this macro narrative in a variety of ways. And one of the ways it says it is found there in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. There, if you remember from last week, we, Jesus said to his disciples just before he is taken up, you will, be, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He's talking to his disciples, those who would trust in him, those who would believe the gospel. And he's saying, look, My spirit, my presence is about to come upon you, and the spirit is going to empower you to bear witness. And so last week, we kick-started a new series studying the book of Acts under the rubric of movement. And we said that movement is what happens when the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel collide in our lives, and we are swept up in the current of what God is up to. And this is what Jesus is getting after here in verse 8. He's saying, you are going to be my witnesses. You are going to bear witness to the beauty of Jesus through your words and through your works. That's the type of movement that we're talking about. And the Holy Spirit is empowering and energizing that every step of the way. And so that's kind of the macro narrative in this passage. But what you're going to read throughout the book of Acts is a lot of little stories A lot of little stories of disciples who have unique journeys and unique paths to walk in their obedience to Jesus. But Jesus in his sovereignty is able to pull all the threads together to form a beautiful tapestry of gospel movement that would make up the book of Acts. As the book of Acts would tell us, kind of the the seminal stages of the birth of the church and how the church advances the gospel in the first century. It's what goes down in Acts is really what's responsible for you and I being in this room today. And so we want to think about this dynamic of God's plan and God's purpose because, and how our lives kind of correspond with it because that's really where this passage would, would lead us in tonight's message. So you think about the story. What's happening here? After Jesus says, you guys are going to be my witnesses, you're going to be a part of what I'm doing in the world. Jesus is then taken up, and the disciples are thinking about what Jesus just told them, and and so they return to Jerusalem to wait there, to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And so they return back and to, to wait upon the Lord, but understand that they're waiting upon the Lord does not mean that they are idle. It doesn't mean that they are actionless. It doesn't mean that they are making no decisions or thinking through or praying through anything specific. In fact, what you're going to find in today's passage is that the disciples, while they're waiting upon the Lord, they are prayerfully considering how they could start lining their lives up with the macro narrative or the big story of God. And they start making some decisions in this passage that are quite significant. You have 11 disciples who would make up the 11 apostles, and they're saying, look, there's supposed to be 12 of us. And one disciple who would have been an apostle named Judas, he forfeited his role at his seat at the table. He's not an apostle. He betrayed Jesus. He is now dead. But we have this gap, this hole in the circle of 12, and that hole needs to be filled. 
And the reason why that needed to be filled is because Jesus would say in Luke chapter 22, verse 29, he would talk to his disciples and listen to what he says. He says, I bestow on you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's saying these 12 disciples would have sat on 12 thrones and they would have in some way judged the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I don't know what all that means exactly. I don't know how that would pan out practically, but there was purpose in the 12. So much so when you come to the end of the story, this is exactly what you see taking place. Revelation chapter 21. We're given a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. We're being kind of cued into the new Jerusalem. And listen to what it says. It says, the city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. Once again, 12 names, 12 thrones that had a role to play that was unique to them in the story of God. And so at this stage, since Judas has betrayed his office, he's forfeited his seat at the table, that seat now has to be filled. And so the disciples and everybody else who has gathered with them in that room have to decide who that's going to be. And so what we begin to see in this passage is a pattern and a picture of how you and I can go about making decisions, how you and I might make decisions in an effort to discern the will of God, to see how our micro-narrative, our individual stories might serve the macro-narrative or the big story of God. One of the things about the scriptures as it relates to God's plan of redemption you might imagine it this way. You, you have this current that is flowing, and this current is moving, and it's not going to stop moving. It's going to reach its intended end. And you and I might be standing on the shores, and, and the reality is we can stand on the shores, and, and the current will just flow by us, or we can figure out how to, to get in on it and allow that current to take us in God's direction so that we can move in the areas that God is moving in the world. You see, God's going to accomplish his plans. He's going to accomplish his purposes, whether you are a part of it or not. But you are given the privileged opportunity to be about what God is about right now. Your individual story can serve the grand story of God. You can find yourself in the current of God's activity. And as as a disciple, I believe deep down inside you want to. Because if you are a Christian who's trusted in the gospel, the Holy Spirit has been given to you. And with the Spirit comes a desire to be about the things that God is about. And so I know for for the Christian in this room, you want to be a part of what God is doing in the world. And so the question then becomes, how do we make decisions to make that happen? How do we make choices to align our lives up with the purposes of God? How do we step into the current and start moving in God's direction with the major life-shaping decisions that we are all making over the course of our lifetime? And so to answer that, I want to look at the story, and I just want to identify seven principles or seven practices that will help you kind of discern God's will and make those kinds of decisions. And it all starts there at the very beginning of the passage, right after Jesus has taken up the disciples in verse 12, returned to Jerusalem. And when they arrived there, they went into an upper room and they hung out together. They did some specific things, but what I really want you to see is how they returned to Jerusalem together. 
And when they got to Jerusalem, they didn't just break out and disperse going to their own individual houses and homes. No, they went into one room and they hung out together. They prayed together. They studied the scriptures together. They did various things together. But what you see is that they were discerning the will of God in, by being in community. They were discerning God's will by being in community. So you have the 11 disciples plus several other folks. You have uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the brothers and other women there in total. You have 120 people there pressing in to discern the will of God. If you're going to make decisions as a Christian, as you seek to discern God's will for you, your life, it, it begins by you being in community. You see, you aren't called to follow Jesus by yourself. You are not called to make major life-shaping decisions on your own without any respect to what God is doing in the community around you. You've been given a gift by sinking into a community called a church whereby you can glean wisdom from people around you. You can ask for perspective from those around you. You can sink into the kinds of relationships that can help you identify blind spots if you're moving in a direction that might not be along, that, that might not run or flow with the current of God for your life and for the world. And so we begin to discern the will of God by being in community and sinking into relationships with others that we can, with whom we can press into God together. Back in the 16th century, John Calvin kind of laid out a twofold process for discerning God's will and And I think his words are wise, and I think they hold true. He said, on one hand, as you discern God's will, you need to rely upon the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. That is, as the Holy Spirit begins to impress things upon you, kicks dust up in your soul to unsettle you or to stir you up in a certain direction, to provoke interest or curiosity about making a change or moving in a certain direction. You begin to, you sense that, and you Think about that. You meditate upon that. You pull that thread a little bit. You need that dynamic to discerning God's will. But that's not all you need. He said what you need is the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, and at the same time, you need the external affirmation of the church. You need to be in community who can help you discern whether or not what you're sensing is really from God. Those who might be able to help you process where your heart may be in a given moment if you are reacting negatively and that's why you want to make a change or whether you're responding positively to a change that God may want you to make. So you want to be in community as you make decisions. But not only do you see community at work in this passage, you also see them persisting in prayer. They're in community together and they are persisting in prayer. Look at verse 14. It says they all were continually united in prayer, meaning they prayed and kept praying. They prayed and they kept praying together. They were persisting in prayer. They didn't just give God a drive-by shout-out. God, would you give us your Holy Spirit so we could do what you want us to do and then move on with the rest of their day and go about the rest of their lives? No, they prayed and they kept praying. There is persistence here. And there is persistence in the prayer life of the early church that is highlighted all throughout the book of Acts. In fact, prayer is one of the keynote themes of this book. It's mentioned 31 times in the book of Acts. You're going to hear Luke talk about prayer. In 20 of the 28 chapters, you're going to see prayer taking place. If the early church did anything, the early church prayed. They were a prayerful people, and they persisted in their prayers 
And really what you see in verse 14 is them doing exactly what Jesus taught his disciples to do in Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus teaches, provides a whole teaching on persistence in prayer. And in a portion of that chapter, listen to what he says. Luke chapter 11, verse 9. Jesus says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What Jesus is saying there is is to persist in prayer. Ask and keep asking. Knock and keep knocking. Pray and keep praying. Don't just treat God like a drive-through window where you come through one time with your request and making your order and then moving on to something else. There are some things God doesn't give apart from persistence in prayer. There are some things God doesn't provide apart from persistence in prayer. And so we want to think about these dynamics because this pattern is true not only in Jesus' teaching, it's true back in the Old Testament with the, prophet of, with the prophet Isaiah. He would say something very similar in Isaiah chapter 62. You can check out this passage on the screen. Isaiah 62, Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen on your walls. They will never be silent day or night. There is no rest for you who remind the Lord, meaning those of you who are praying, keep praying, don't rest. And then he goes on, do not give God rest until he establishes and make Jerusalem the praise of the earth, meaning pray and keep praying. Essentially what the prophet is saying, pester God in prayer. It's almost audacious, so audacious that we might could say we're being told to annoy God until he responds. It's a bizarre, it's bizarre language. And Jesus picks it up and he uses it in Luke chapter 11. Then the disciples are employing it and applying it in Acts chapter 1. They are continually praying through the will of God in that chapter. So we want to persist in prayer Another way of thinking about it is that a hurried request, soon forgotten and unrepeated, will produce no fruit. A hurried request, soon forgotten and unrepeated, will rarely produce fruit in our lives. But there's an interesting connection in Luke chapter 11. Notice that Luke points out that that God gives the Holy Spirit to the one who asks him. He gives the Holy Spirit to the one who is persisting in prayer. Now, this same passage is also found in the Gospel of Matthew. Only in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew doesn't say that God, the Heavenly Father, will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. In Matthew, he says, God the Father will give good gifts to those who ask. And so there's a specific emphasis in Luke's Gospel that we can't miss. He's connecting persistence in prayer with the gift of God himself. Persistence in prayer with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, think about what happens in the book of Acts. Here in the upper room, the disciples are gathered together. They, are, they know that Jesus has told them to wait upon the Lord, so they are there. They're not sitting idle. They're engaging in spiritual activity. They're praying continually to the Lord, and in light of what Jesus had revealed and spoken to them, and they're going to keep praying until Acts chapter 2. And do you know what happens in Acts chapter 2? Pentecost. The moment God gives his Holy Spirit to his people. You might say that 
Pentecost is the fruit of persistent prayer. There is a close connection between the prayer of the church and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1 and 2. And as we think through the will of God and we are making decisions in our lives, we want to think through and make decisions in light of the gift God has given to us as Christians. That is, we have his presence, we have his spirit, let's pray like it. We have his presence, let's pray as as dependently as possible upon his spirit's presence on our lives so that we might make decisions that correspond with his current, that move in the direction of his, of his will. And so you have here the idea of community. Then you have persistence in prayer. And then as you keep going in the passage, you get into verse 15. And you find this principle of submitting to the scriptures. If you are going to discern God's will and make decisions in light of it, submitting to the scriptures is keynote. This is the emphasis in verses 15 through 23 where Peter stands up and he rallies the crowd in the room and he begins to talk to them from the scriptures about God's will. And we know that they're submitting to the scriptures because they believe something about the Old Testament. They believe what we believe about the Bible. That is that the Bible is God's word, that the Holy Spirit inspired it into being and into existence. This is what's affirmed in verse 16. Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So they're affirming that the scriptures, that is the Old Testament that's tied to the prophets, those scriptures are inspired, they've been breathed out by God, and since they are God's word, they are submitting to the scriptures. And they're thinking through the will of God in light of what God has revealed. Now, when it comes to this idea of God's will, there's another, there's a couple more categories that you need to be aware of in your discipleship. A couple other ways to think about God's will for our lives as individuals and for our life together as a church that's a part of his big church all around the world. On one hand, there's something called God's revealed will. Now, when we talk about God's revealed will, we're talking about what's in the Bible, what's been written, what's been presented, what's been clearly given to us in the scriptures. This is called revelation, God's revealed will. I think that's what's at play in verses 15 through 22. I think that's what the disciples are wrestling through here because what Peter's doing is he's thinking about the scriptures that anticipated the betrayal of Jesus. He's thinking about the scriptures as they anticipate Judas's replacement. In other words, he's saying, look, God revealed that all that's gone down with Jesus, that it was going to go down. In other words, God wasn't caught off guard by Judas's betrayal. God wasn't caught off guard by Judas needing to be replaced. So he's saying this is the revealed will. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't think that God's current has been knocked off course because Judas did what he did. And we shouldn't think it this way because there's only 11 disciples now. He's saying, no, this was anticipated. No, this was predicted. No, this is somehow woven into the plan and the purpose of God. Check out his revealed will and you'll see that. But what's not clear in this moment is who the replacement's going to be. So when it comes to God's revealed will, we're talking about what's been revealed in Scripture, what's found in the Bible. But then there's something called the concealed will of God. And the concealed will of God speaks to specific variables that aren't clearly and outright stated in the Bible. 
So think about what's going on in the story. Judas needs to be replaced. Everybody is aware of that because that's what the scriptures taught. But the scriptures didn't say who. And so the disciples had to go further in this moment to make a decision that corresponded with the concealed will of God, the fact that they didn't know who was going to take Judas's place. And this is what's happening in verses 23 through 26 when a couple of people are presented and some steps are taken to decide between two qualified, two qualified guys. Now, I share that with you at this point because when you are, if you are seeking to discern God's will for your life, what we tend to do as Christians is we tend to overemphasize the concealed will of God in our lives. That tends to be all that we care about. We want to know the unknown. We want God to give us a name of the person we're supposed to marry. We want God to give us the name of the school that we're supposed to go to. We want God to give us the name of the boss that we need to work under at Amazon or Microsoft or whatever the case may be. We're, we're overly concerned with the concealed will of God that a lot of times the revealed will of God just falls off our radar. But if we're paying attention to the pattern of this passage, do you understand what the church is doing? The church has given herself to the revealed will of God, and it is from that vantage point and that vantage point alone where they are prepared to engage the concealed will of God. In other words, if you want to discern God's will for your life, you need to know God's will for the church. If you want to discern God's will for you as, a, as an individual and in your micro-narrative, you must know God's will for his church, you must know God's big story, plans, and purposes. If you are not aware of that, you are not going to make decisions on the personal level that correspond with the will of God. So what you want to do as a Christian is you want to start with what God has revealed. And you want to give yourself completely to what you already know. Live your life in that current and then from that place, you can step into the concealed areas of life with confidence. You can step into the concealed areas of life with more peace and with more passion and with more assertiveness because you've already been doing what God has told you to do. And you're not overly concerned and overly emphasizing the concealed will and ignoring the revealed will of God. In other words, wherever you are, be all there. Be all there in your obedience. Be all there in your faith. Fully give yourself to the plans and the purposes of God wherever you are in life and doing the things that you know to, to be done. You, you know Jesus' teachings about love and service. You know Jesus' teaching about holiness and purity. You know Jesus' teaching about various things about life. Give yourself to what you know. And as you move from that vantage point, you can engage the concealed, wills, the concealed will of God with much more clarity and confidence. That's the flow of the passage, isn't it? This is what God has spoken. This isn't quite clear, but we're going we're gonna to know this. And when we know this, we'll start making some decisions in that direction. So if we're going to make decisions, if we're going to discern God's will, we submit to the scriptures, we give ourselves to what we do know, we obey the scriptures, and then we trust God with the things that aren't quite clear. But notice what happens in the passage. Notice how the disciples move towards the concealed will of God. This happens in verse 23. They deal with the concealed will of God by saying, okay, this is what Scripture said. We're not caught off guard. Judas's betrayal didn't fool God. It didn't, uh, Jesus didn't make a mistake by appointing him as one of his disciples. 
No, he's going to be replaced. The scriptures all anticipated this. Now look at verse 23. After thinking through that and then thinking through the qualifications of, of who could take Judas's place, it says in verse 23 that two men were presented. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice and Matthias. And what you see the church doing here when it came to the concealed will of God is they start considering options. It's a good thing when you are discerning God's will and making decisions, moving towards the concealed will of God, that, that you consider options. That you think thoroughly about what your options are. And you weigh them and you examine them. You fill out applica applications. You make and conduct, conduct interviews, not of potential spouses, but conduct interviews of jobs and those types of things. You go on dates. You, ex you get to know a person and explore those dynamics. You consider options as you're trying to make and discern God's will in certain directions. Now, what's challenging for the Christian is that a lot of times when we start considering the options, we find that the options are both good. And that's really what gives us a headache when we have two options and both are good and we can't choose between the two. That's what's going on here. Both of these men are qualified. They both bore witness to the life and ministry of Jesus. They both bore witness to the resurrected Jesus. They're qualified to be apostles. They're both good candidates. How do you choose between two good options? Well, you keep moving. And here they're considering the options. They're, they're presenting two candidates. And then verse 24, we find them examining the heart. Another dynamic to discerning God's will and making decisions is examining the heart. Verse 24, after they presented these two candidates, they prayed, you, Lord, know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen. In other words, they're saying, Lord, you know hearts better than, than we do. You examine the hearts, you know the hearts, and so we're putting our hearts before you and we're asking you to make this decision for us. Make the decision in a way that would eclipse some of the Anything in our hearts that might be off in this process. It's the type of thing that the psalmist would pray in Psalm 139, verse 34, when he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way within me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Praying through the state of the heart, examining the heart to make sure our heart is in the right place so that we can make decisions that correspond with the will of God. So we think about examining our hearts and putting our hearts out there. One of the ways that I think this shows up a lot of times in our discipleship is when, we, when our decisions are largely reactionary. And we make a big, major, life-shaping decision in reaction to something we don't like. And so we find ourselves leaving everywhere. We don't ever find ourselves going anywhere. But as disciples of Jesus, when it comes to following God's will, we shouldn't be leavers. We should only be goers. We don't leave and react to everything that is poor, everything that is conflicting, or everything that is hard so that we just leave everything. No, we, we pray, we discern, we seek counsel, and we try to discern, okay, where can we go? What is God calling us to rather than what are we trying to escape from? And I see this all the times in discipleship where the heart isn't examined and Disciples just live their lives in a reactionary fashion, leaving everything and going nowhere. And then they find themselves 40 years down the road wondering, well, did I live my life for anything that counted? Did I put myself in a position to see God do things and to be a part of what he was doing in the world? Was I just walking along the shore of God's activity or was I actually sinking into its current and moving with it? 
Well, we have to examine the heart to discern whether or not we're leavers or goers, whether or not we're reacting against something or whether or not we're positively, proactively pursuing something. So the disciples put themselves out there. They say, Lord, you know everyone's hearts. And so you have this idea of examining the heart that's part of the process. But then in verse 26, you find them trusting God's sovereignty. As you start making decisions and moving in the current of God, ultimately you have to trust God's sovereignty. And this shows up in kind of a unique way. It says in verse 26 that the disciples then cast lots. In other words, they rolled dice. They gambled on the decision that was being made in this moment. Now, it seemed like a big decision, and this doesn't seem like a very reliable way to make the decision. It's like they went to Target and got Farkle and came and just rolled the dice out to figure out, okay, this is the, this is the guy that we should go to. But casting lots was a very common way of decision-making in antiquity. It was practiced by lots of people, the Jewish people, and the very first Christians, too. It, it was a way where you would take a couple of objects, you would mark them, and each marker would indicate the choices that you're trying to choose, what you're trying to choose between, then you throw them in a container, you really treat them like dice, throw them on the ground, and whatever marker comes up, that's what you go with. And so for the ancient people to cast lots meant that they were, that was their way of trusting in the sovereignty of God. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. Listen to what it says there. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So this was a way for them to trust and to exercise faith in God's sovereignty over this decision. Now, this is one of the places where we need to be very clear about what the book of Acts is trying to do. Now, the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive, meaning it's describing how the early church was and what they did, and there's a lot that we can learn from that. But it's not necessarily prescriptive in the sense that you read verse 26 and you say, they had a big decision to make, they cast lots, let's go flip coins. That's not the application from the text. And the reason for that is because after this moment and after Pentecost happens in chapter 2, you're going to see the church making lots of decisions. They have to decide what to do with the Gentiles who are coming to faith. They have to decide... What to do with Paul? Should he go to Rome? Should he not go to Rome? They have to decide, okay, who's going to go with Paul? They're making tons of choices throughout the rest of the book of Acts, but you never see them again cast lots. Now, the reason for that is because of Pentecost. Pentecost would be the watershed moment, God giving his spirit to us so that we don't rely upon something like lot casting when it comes to making decisions. And so we trust God's sovereignty in light of the gift of the Spirit that he has given to us. And we make our decisions in light of the fact that God is in control, in light of the fact that God is sovereign over all things, and if he's given us his Spirit, he's not going to leave us in the lurch as it relates to his will for our lives. We can make decisions with confidence because God is sovereign. We can make decisions with confidence because God is good in his sovereignty. You know, God doesn't leverage his sovereignty in order to squash his people. He leverages his sovereignty in order to save and sanctify his people. And so when we're making decisions that put us in the current of God's activity, we can trust God's sovereignty all along the way, which is ultimately what the disciples do in verse 26. The lot fell to Matthew. He was added to the 11 apostles. In other words, they made a decision and they stuck to it. As you are discerning God's will for your life and you're making decisions, in the end, that's where you got to get to. In the end, you've got to get to making a decision and then committing to that decision. 
The Christian life is not meant to be lived looking over your shoulder. The Christian life is not meant to be lived looking back on your life regretfully over the decisions you prayed through, the decisions you sought counsel through, the decisions that you considered options for and examined the heart on and trusted God's sovereignty with, uh, the decisions that you submitted to the scriptures. The Christian life is not meant to be lived in regret looking back wondering, well, what if I would have chose that? Well, what if I would have chose this? Do you realize how much anxiety comes from that mentality? How much frustration can come? How much bitterness can grow in your heart towards God if that's the way you, you made decisions? No, what we find here is the disciples making a decision and committing to it. And if you and I are going to discern the will of God, in the end, it just boils down to pulling the trigger and then trusting God with whatever comes as a result of that decision. And this is where you need to think well as a Christian because when you move into the future in this direction, chances are, let me put it this way, the will of God isn't always a very safe place to be. The will of God isn't always an easy place to be. If you want proof, think of Jesus. It was the will of the Lord to crush his son. It was the will of the Lord for Jesus to go to the cross and be crucified. But it was also the will of the Lord for his son to be resurrected. And you need to know the movement, the current of the Christian life is often from death to life, from death to life, from death to life. You need to know that you may make choices in light of the will of God for your life, and those choices may put you in a precarious situation surrounded by precarious people, and you don't know which is up or down or left or right, and you're confused and bewildered about what is taking place, and you're wondering, God, I trusted you in this decision. Why is everything hard? And in those moments, the Spirit of God breathes upon you. Remember, my, remember the Savior. Remember Jesus, who's followed the will of God unto death, even death on a cross. But remember that this Savior didn't just die and stayed dead. This Savior moved through the cross and, into the empty, or, and out of the empty tomb. What this means is, is that you can put your head to the plow, move forward without ever looking back. And no matter what comes your way as a result of the decisions that you are making, you can endure them, you can press through them, because the same God who lifted Jesus up out of the grave is the same God who's going to carry you through any hardships, any difficulties, any struggles that come with the decisions you are making in this life. As followers of Jesus, we make decisions differently. We don't make them with rearview mirrors. We don't make them looking back with regret upon what we're choosing and what we're deciding. We make decisions, we commit to those decisions, trusting God in the real-time moments of daily living. And as we are moving into the future in that way, we can find ourselves making decisions with confidence, making decisions with peace, making decisions with, with an awareness of who God is and what God is like. And, and we can rest assured that we are sinking into his current and that his current is going to carry us all the way all the way through. Let's pray together.